Wonderful, thank you. So I'm going to uh, continue our series on the good and beautiful community. Today, this week's uh, topic is based on the chapter called A Hopeful Community. And um, if you're just joining us, we've been going through three books this year. The Good and Beautiful God is the one we started with. Uh, and then The Good and Beautiful Life, uh, which was based on the Sermon on the Mount. And now by the same author, The Good and Beautiful Community, which has lots of wonderful uh, exercises, soul training exercises that are included in your bulletin today, um, as well as um, uh, home, uh, small group uh, interaction exercises. So today I want to start with a confession. Conf- confession is good for the soul. But a couple of weeks ago, our son showed up. And many of you know our son. He grew up here in East Van. He'll always be an East Van vo- boy. He, he lives in Calgary right now. And um, we just had the most delightful time. And every time we have with him, it just gets better and better. He's in his mid-30s now. But I have to confess, because he talked me at about 10 o'clock on a Monday night, which is right before I'm supposed to go back into work again. Monday is usually my, my Sabbath day. Into going into a movie with him. And so Kathleen, because she's a mom, decided to come with us. So we went. And... <laughs> so I see a big smile on Mark Lee's face. Um, and Mason. Ah, uh, yeah. Micah. Okay. Um... So there's a certain fraternity there, you know. Um, But I I have to confess that it is not the kind of movie I would normally choose to go to. But the things you do for your kids, eh? And um, so we went at about, like, so, like, bedtime for me is 10 o'clock. Like, seriously, I don't do well. And so I just, we're driving there, and I'm just going, I'm crazy. I love my son, I'm crazy. I love my son, I'm crazy. But anyway, it was two hours of adrenaline, uh, war on wheels, mixed in with some eye candy. And uh, the story goes about this this, uh, woman starring uh, Charlize Theron who, who, uh, against insurmountable odds, is is, uh, oppressed by the evil Omorton Joe. And she convinces this this good guy, Mad Max, played by Tom Hardy, uh, who's been captured by the bad guys and has made this captive universal blood donor for the bad guys. And uh, she talks this guy into uh, fighting to escape their oppression, and, and so it's just this big mad escape on wheels. And that's what the whole movie is. And the guy, he, the, the, the Mad Max guy, he's, he's initially quite reluctant to... To, to go. In fact, he's resistant. And the, the one insight amidst all the adrenaline that I got from the show was where, in defiance, when he's first resisting her, her uh, uh, pleas to help, to help them in this escape attempt, uh, he says to her, why should I help you? Why should I do this? Hope is cruel. Hope is cruel. And I think we live in a world that, that um, increasingly believes that. 
We live in a world that has, the beatitude is, blessed are those who expect nothing, for they shall never be disappointed. Don't get my hopes up, because it's more cruel to get my hopes up and then have them dashed than to never hope at all, and to live in this. And it's not a new thing. I, I read a Bible story this week in the book of 2 Kings, where this, this woman who, who was infertile, she couldn't have children. Elisha the prophet promises her that God's going to give her a miracle with her and her husband, and she's going to have a son. And she says to him, don't tell me these things. And a little bit later, she has the son, and he grows to a, a, some, some preschool age and dies. And when she comes to Elisha, she said, didn't I tell you not to get my hopes up? Didn't I tell you? It's an issue of our time, and I think it's what caused Barack Obama to write the book entitled Audacity of Hope. I like that title because it tells us there's a cheekiness to hope. There's a, a certain defiance for those who are hopeful in our time. And it's against that backdrop that our text tells us today that we are a, a hopeful community. And Paul is writing to the Colossians. It's a city in called Colossae that doesn't exist anymore, but in the times of the Bible, it was in what we would know as modern-day Turkey. And it was a thriving church at this time. And here's what he writes to the Colossians, things that I hope he can say about us. I think he can. Let's read it together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. So just to point out here that Paul talks about their faith and their love, but that it sprang from hope. So it's like planting a seed of hope. It's like a tree. The roots are hope, but the branches in the trunk are faith and love. That those three are connected. And um, as a teenager, it seems like I've been talking about my childhood lately. I don't know what that is, but I remember as a teenager when I was resisting surrendering my life to Christ under great conviction that it was true and it was real. And last week I said some of the people put me off. <laughs> but, but another thing that really caused me to resist Christ was this war in my soul and this fear that I would, if I gave my life to Christ, I would have to witness to all my friends. Ever, anybody ever remember that word, witness to my friends? Well, you got to understand as a teenager, as a uh, you know, the, the, the opinion of your parents goes down and the, uh, the stock value of the opinion of your peers goes way up. And so the thought of me talking to my friends at school about Jesus was absolutely terrifying. 
And there was a lot of baggage that was associated with this. I mean, I was raised in an environment, uh, the cultural theological worldview, that had some false narratives about this. And, and as we've been saying, false narratives have a grain of truth, and that's what gives them their punch, right? If, there was, if it was all a lie, we'd go, that's a lie. But because there's truth in false narratives, we buy, we, when the enemy accuses you, is it all wrong? No, a lot of what he says is true. That's why it's so, the accusations are so powerful, aren't they? Condemnation and shame and guilt are so powerful because there's truth in them. But it's a lie because of the one who's saying it, because of the one who's speaking it. And one of the false narratives I had was this scripture that I was well aware of as a, as a young Pentecostal kid. And it was that verse, remember, I think we just read it a couple weeks ago, where Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of you before my Father and my holy angels. And I always had this terrifying scenario of a kid. As a kid, when I'm standing before God at the end of my life, and there's Jesus with the Father, and I come before him, and the whole universe is watching on big screen, and Jesus says to the Father, I don't know this guy. I'm ashamed of him because he didn't tell his friends at school about me. Terrifying. Well, that was the shame narrative. The, the guilt narrative was another one. Some of you remember the prophet Ezekiel. This one was given to us sometimes where the Lord gave him a message of warning to a wicked person. And God said to Ezekiel, if you don't warn that person then, and they die, then they will be judged. But their blood will be on your head too. And that used to terrify me. If I don't tell my friends that they're going to go to hell, then I'm going to go to hell too. Like it was kind of like, Double jeopardy. Well, these, are, these are, 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 are false narratives that produced a lot of unwise, unhealthy actions by Christians. Uh, where uh, we, we would just do things out of the wrong motivation. Instead of it being out of love, it was out of guilt and fear and shame. I remember my brother, one of my favorites. It's amazing how God would still use these half-baked efforts that we did sometimes. But my brother and I, we were in our early 20s, late teens even, and we went out on this witnessing venture, and we trained our youth group in Calgary, so we were going to go out on the street and just cold, come up to people and talk to them about Jesus. And so we went to Banff, and uh, we're, we're, we're on the streets of Banff, my brother sees this big biker dude, you know, you know, twice his size, sitting on this bike, you know, Harley or whatever, and he, my brother is so scared. He's so nervous, but he's going, I don't want the blood to be on my head, you know, and that kind of stuff. So he comes up to the biker and he goes, hi. Did you know that Jesus died for you so much that he loves you? And then he realized, oh, I got my words backwards. And he just, oh, and he was, he was ready to run. All of a sudden he looked and the biker dude is weeping. He's just weeping. Well, that was more terrifying to my brother than getting the snot beat out of him. He took off. He said, God bless you. <laughs> he, he couldn't handle it. I still tease him to this day about that one. So God even uses these half-baked efforts that we have. But it's, it's, it's you know, um, our, my Korean friends, our homestays, have told us that you know, horror stories of, of Christians motivated by guilt and shame, 
buttoning hope, buttonholing them on trains and inappropriate times at work, trying to get, trying to preach to them and taking away work time and and no protocol, no EQ, no tact or wisdom. Jesus said, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But oftenly, often we have been as stupid as doves and as harmful as serpents. We've versed it, haven't we? And that's because of guilt and shame. And so when I finally did surrender my life to Christ at the age of 16, I'm so grateful that I was surrounded by a lot of wisdom. My parents had wisdom about this. They exposed me to some great teaching. And I had this person with me called the Holy Spirit. And somehow, in spite of all that guilt and all that shame and all that manipulation that I'd become familiar with, I had this instinctive sense of of propriety and timing. And um, we heard a lot of teaching at that time that was saying Christians have talked too much. It's time to shut up and live the life. Live such a life that it will engender questions. And then share. And I thought, well, I can can do that. I I can live with that. And so... I remember as a, going into grade 12, I was terrified. I was convinced I was going to be persecuted, that I was going to have rotten tomatoes and oranges thrown at me, that I was going to be mocked, spit on, jeered, and ridiculed. So I was reading all the persecution passages in the New Testament about if you're persecuted for Christ, and I was beginning to go, hey, this is a pretty good deal. If I get persecuted, man, this is, it's like William Booth. Remember that guy? He, 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 William Booth was on the streets of London, and this guy just, just spat right on his, left a great big gob. And one of William Booth's associates came and was going to wipe it off, and Booth says, don't touch that. It's a merit badge in the army of God. You know, and I like stories like that. So I was getting ready for persecution in grade 12, man. I was just gearing up and, and, and then I thought, you know, maybe my life isn't all that effective yet, so I need some help so people know I'm a Christian. So I started carrying this Bible around in grade 12, and I wore, it was back in the days of the Jesus movement, where they had Jesus buttons. Do you guys remember those Jesus buttons? And you know what mine said? Read your Bible. It'll scare the hell out of you. I loved it, man. So I walked into school, and I used to go on these bus trips and, and bring my Bible and my badge. And my friends, they didn't follow the script. My friends said, hey, that's cool. Hey, okay, all right, well, that's great. Yeah. That's great. I was kind of waiting. I was so disappointed. I wanted to get kicked and beaten and... So, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's happened since, but um, so it, and 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 to make matters worse, they liked me so much that in November of that graduation year, they all voted me in as the valedictorian of my school. So at our graduation ceremony, with about a thousand people jammed in this gymnasium, I told the whole school about Jesus. I told the whole the, their parents, the the town, you know. And, and it was one of the most remarkable nights of my life. Uh, friends of mine were crying afterwards. And uh, funny enough, on my sabbatical in June, my graduation class had heard me 
had the 40-year reunion, and I reconnected with a whole bunch of these people and found out that numbers of them have come to Christ. We spent some time in, a, in the home of a guy in Calgary. He was a drug dealer and a pusher and a user and, and just had dropped out of life. And he's now married, following Jesus, and, 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 and just a godly, godly guy. We had an incredible time. We still talk about that time. And it was just, it just so reminded me of when I became a, became a grandparent. Does anybody remember that? And, um, you know, I remember we were late. Well, no, actually, we weren't late. Samuel came early. We kind of talk about that, and we accuse each other. No, you were late. I said, no, you were early. And, uh, but we were stuck in Heathrow when he arrived at the children's hospital. And uh, so Kath and I came running into the children's hospital, and there's Dee holding him, and Dee handed him to me for the very first time. Oh, I can still, I can still feel it, that moment. And his eyes were closed. So we were talking with Dee and Marcus, and Kathleen was there and just celebrating. And all of a sudden, I looked down, and his eyes were wide open, and they were looking at me. And they said, you're late, Grandpa. <laughs> you know? um, and so this, as I looked into these eyes, something mystical and magical happened. And we just became best friends forever. And for days and months, weeks and months, I would just, anytime I had any spare time, uh, any, any, just a, a space, my, I, would be, I would daydream about my grandson. And it became so hard not to talk about it. I was always talking about it. And as you know, I would shamelessly exploit my pastor role as a pastor and use the PowerPoint on Sundays to show off my grandkids over and over again. And the congregation would roll their eyes and say, oh, here we go again. And they'd patiently kind of go through it. And, uh, whoops, sorry. And, um, and uh, just, just saying... But anyway, the point is I couldn't shut up. I just couldn't shut up. It was good news for me. And I wanted to share it. And that's, that's kind of evangelism. Evangelism is, I was reading the story this morning of those lepers. In, in, remember that in the Old Testament, that story where there's this city that was surrounded by an enemy army and they were starving because the enemy wouldn't let the Safeway trucks in and out. Remember that? And so they're all starving and then these, these four lepers, they're having a, a good and beautiful life home group on the edge of the city. They're going through a book study, but they're not only lepers, but they're in this famine, and they look at each other, and they go, you know what, this is not a good and beautiful life. Let us, if we go into the city, we're going to die. If we stay here, we're going to die. So why don't we go to the enemy camp, and we'll go to the enemy camp, and we'll ask them for some food. If they kill us, hey, we're going to die anyway, so we don't lose anything but maybe they'll let us live and we'll have something to eat. So they go, the four lepers walk. Sounds like a band or, I don't know. The four lepers. Anyway, they walk towards the, the enemy's camp. And, and God's, it says that God made the sound like they were horses and chariots and a mighty army. And the Arameans that had surrounded them thought that they were being attacked by an enemy army. So they, they fled, so when the, when the lepers get to the enemy's camp, they've left all their food, their refrigerators. There's Armani and guest clothes everywhere. They grab them, take some money, and it's just like loaded. They just take it all, and they go and bury it, and they come back, and they just start 
chowing down and, and they're just like, Bleh! you know, they're just like flop. And all of a sudden they look at each other and they, they go, wait a minute, there's a city starving back there. This isn't good. If they find out what we've done, we'll be in big trouble. We better go tell everybody, right? And that's evangelism. Evangelism is lepers saying, we found food. Let's go tell the other lepers. It's lepers telling other lepers where to find food. It kind of reminds me of one of my favorite John Wimber stories when we showed the Wimber testimony, where Wimber was a, you remember he was in that band, the Righteous Brothers, and, and he came to Christ, and he was so excited about what Jesus did that he started inviting, it was a nice little brethren, or a Quaker church, really nice, sedated, you know, proper, in order, right? So he starts bringing all this wildlife into the church. And he stands, there's this, you know, and it grew like crazy because he was such, such an evangelist telling people the good news. So all these drug addicts and rockers and hippies and they, they were coming to church and there's this little old lady after one of the Sundays, she's st standing outside and she says, she says to him because he was now brought on staff, she says, you wrecked our church. You wrecked it. And he said, you're right. I wrecked your church. And he says, they both wept together. Because he said, I said to her, what could I do? I couldn't just come and feast and not bring my friends. Right? So, so the two false narratives of guilt, uh, the third narrative is that Christians should just foc on, focus on keeping their faith to themselves and not be concerned with sharing with others. Let's just be political correct. Well, that's a false narrative too. We've got something to share. And the fact is, is that we're all sharing. We are sharing our hope, whether we know it or not. Someone once said, you're the only Bible that anybody will ever, some people will ever read. No pressure, right? But it's true. So we share our, our faith by how we live. We share our hope by what we do. We share it by our lives. And one of my favorite saints of all time, St. Francis of Assisi, said this, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Isn't that good? Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. So how do we live? Here's a good and beautiful community that is living the life. Let's follow this. together. Let's read this together from Romans 12 where Paul describes what a good and beautiful community that has a hope is living. Let's read together. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, Patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right 
in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Can you imagine? If a community lives that out, it's going to engender questions. And Peter said, be ready. So the second way that we share is with our words. Kim, is there a Kleenex back there? I'm, oh, here we go. Excuse me. Ah. So Peter talks about uh, what to do if people ask you questions about your, your life, your hope. Because a community that's living the way that we just read about has hope. But the hope we're talking about is not the kind of lame hope that we often hear, well, I hope so. You know, people use that, I hope, hope we come. Well, that kind of hope is kind of, it's, it's iffy. You don't know. But the hope in the Bible, the word that Peter uses here, he says, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Isn't that beautiful? So beautiful. I love the scriptures. I love the word of God. So this word hope is a confidence in a good future. It's an assurance. It's not like, well, I hope, but I don't know for sure. It's guaranteed. The only difference between hope and faith is it's not something you've received yet, but you know it's coming. Confidence in your good future. Your future is secure. It will be well with you. Julian of Norwich, at the age of 30, had a vision of Christ on the cross. She asked God to give her an experience of sickness where, she'd be, where she would experience death without actually dying. And then she asked the Lord to give her compassion. He answered all those prayers, and she had an opportunity at 30 years of age to go home. And she was so in love with God, she's a little anchorous in Norwich, England, of a church. And she said, Lord, I really want to come home, but the only reason I want to live longer is so that I can love you better and more. I can have more practice. Loving you better and loving you more. And she coined those words that, that Lynn taught us in the song. It will be well. All things will be well. Ah, uh, your future is good in the Lord. So how do we share our hope? How do we do it? Well, you share your story. But you share the story of Jesus as it has intersected with your story. Now listen, this is so important. Remember when we got water baptized? Some of you, now some of you got sprinkled, but think of the image of, of immersion. When you got baptized in water, you stood there and you were declaring, I am in Christ. Everybody say, in Christ. In Christ. That phrase appears 216 times in the New Testament. So it must be important. 
What in Christ means it's your new homeland. Before I am French, Ukrainian, I am in Christ. Before I'm a Canadian, I'm in Christ. Before I'm a male, I'm in Christ. Before I am a Ligure, I am in Christ. Before I'm in the vineyard, I'm in Christ. That's my homeland. That's my identity. And that's your identity. Before anything else, it transcends everything else. God doesn't ignore it. He doesn't say it's not important, but he says you are, first of all, in Christ. That's your identity. And that means what we have in common is greater than all of our differences if we're in Christ. And so we stand there, and we're in Christ, and that is such good news for the thousands of kids in the foster welfare system of our province or kids lined up for adoption in our province is that there's an identity God has for them. That's good news. That's a hope. And then you're baptized. You died with Christ. That means your old narratives. Loser. Failure. Shame. Guilt. Rejection. Abandonment. Isolation. Whatever it is, those old narratives died with Christ. With Him. Then you were raised with Christ, which means that resurrection life came into you. And the world says, if you behave a certain way, that'll affect your identity. But God says, no, I'm going to give you your identity first. And as you were raised with Christ, God said to you, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, you are, he front loads this, you are holy and without blame. Wow. Holy and without blame. Instead of working all your life to achieve that, God front loads it and says, that's what you are. Now live out of who you are. Now walk out who you are. Your identity is in Christ. So you were raised with Christ. You ascended with Christ. He's above every other name. He's above sickness, cancer, disease, death, oppression, poverty. His name is above all those things. He's been raised up and you've been raised with him and you sit with him in heavenly places and so greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. So he wants you very humbly and very gently to throw your shoulders back and start walking around like you believe that because that's your hope. And it's a reality now. It's this tension of the already and the not yet. But the kingdom has come. And last but not least and best of all, he's coming back. Which means no matter what you're facing today, no matter what, or what crap the enemy is putting you through, no matter how you feel you've got the crap kicked out of you this week, no matter what you're facing right now, discouragement, despair, setbacks, God says the story is not finished. It's not finished yet. Jesus laid in that grave Every demon in hell was focused. Satan said, forget about Hong Kong. Forget about Vancouver. Forget about New York City. Forget about every part of the world. Just focus in on that little place there in Jerusalem and keep that guy in the grave. And they couldn't do it. He broke the power of death and hell. And he came out of that grave. And that is the power that tells us that no matter what death or hell we're facing, the story isn't finished. I wrote in my blog this week that probably the highlight day, and there, it's hard to, tell, to say which day of our sabbatical was the highlight, but 
our first Sunday after we, we left Vancouver, we were blessed by you guys and we went to, to Korea. Our first Sunday in Korea, we decided to visit the world's largest church. And uh, this, is a, uh, this, is, this is not a picture I took, but it looked exactly like this. We were up in the balconies. And Yonggi Cho, the founding pastor, was preaching. The seat, they can seat 25,000 with the help of overflow. And they have seven services all packed on a Sunday. They have over 200,000 people on a given weekend that will attend. They have to tell people you can only come once a month. And the rest of their times they meet in home groups. So it was my second time at this church, and it was a very beautiful, powerful experience, and Kathleen and I were really enjoy, enjoyed hearing Yonggi Cho live. He's Pastor Emeritus now, almost 80 years old. But probably the most moving experience for me of that day was that when we got out of church, we took a train across, right across the river from this church, Yoidofo Gospel Church, which is on an island in the Han River in Seoul, kind of the political and business center of Seoul. And probably the most moving experience is we visited what's called the Juldesen Martyr Shrine. This was a shrine. Juldesen sounds really nice and melodic in English, but in Korean it means beheading mountain. And it's because it was the place where thousands, or hundreds of Catholics in the mid-1800s were put on the edge of a cliff overlooking the Han River, and they were, their throats were slit and they were beheaded, and they were thrown over the cliff. Hundreds of them, men and women. And many of these martyrs were upper-class elite from the Choson dynasty. They were what's called Yangben. And the Choson system of hierarchy is so strict that it, you are forbidden to associate with peasants and slaves and commoners. But these Christian Yangban said, no, we are in Christ now. That transcends our identity as anything else. And so they ate with the slaves and the commoners. And it was such an offense to the Choson dynasty that they were, they were martyred. And as I stood there and I closed my eyes and I imagined that lonely place standing on the hill looking over that cliff and I looked at the Han River and I imagined being in that place at that time as as their throats were slit, they were beheaded, and they lonely and rejected and ridiculed and, and killed for the sake of Christ, and they prayed as they died. As I looked across the river, I saw this, and I don't know, is there a pointer in there, Peter? Just trying to, it'll help if I, yeah, pointers. So, I don't know, but this is what I saw. Do you see that? I saw that big white cross. As I looked across that river, and you know what it was, right? It's the world's largest church. And I wonder if these martyrs had any idea, as they were giving their lives, that within 150 years, over a million people would attend one Christian church. And by the way, Seoul has many churches, over 100,000 Presbyterian, Baptist churches. Did they have any idea that their blood would be the seed that would spread the church? The story wasn't finished. And my favorite story of the first Protestant missionary, his name was Robert Thomas. And he arrived with 
unfortunately, with, a, with an American ship called the SS Sherman. And it was attacked by the hermit kingdom. They were so afraid of outsiders. Korea had been invaded and plundered so many times that they were very, very defensive. And he came on the shore and the ship was being attacked and, and, and people were being killed. And, a, and an executioner put a sword to his throat. And as this Protestant missionary got on his knees, he handed that man the Bible. He said, take this. And he was killed. And they took that Bible and they took it home and they made it wallpaper in their house. They wallpapered their house with the pages of the Bible. And somehow with that wallpaper on the house, people became Christians and it became one of the first Protestant house churches in Korea. Story isn't finished. Story isn't finished. That's our hope. There is nothing you do in vain. And so that's what called Paul to say. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God, knowing that hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not disappoint. So I'm going to invite Terry Ann to come up and we're going to sing about our hope to close. And my conclusion is, regardless of how dark your circumstances today, no matter what you're facing, God has guaranteed our good future. God has guaranteed our good future. Would you turn to the person next to you, and would you look in their eyes, and would you say, God has guaranteed your good future? Go ahead and tell them that right now. God has guaranteed your good future. Some of you need to hear that today. Some of you are dealing with fear and anxiety and oppression. And all you feel is dread. And I declare in the name of Jesus, it is a lie. If you're in Christ, it's a lie. Let that light, let that word penetrate your darkness. Let it come. Let those sitting in darkness see a great light. Let those living in the shadow of death, let a light, let dawn come on them. Weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. I just feel like I want to I bless and pray for people who need a deposit of hope. Your hope has waned. The Lord wants to pour hope in you. And uh, if, if that's you, I want you to just stand to your feet. And we're going to just bless and allow the Holy Spirit to come just as we sing this.